Good morning. Let's begin our Sabbath school lesson with, with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we, we count it a privilege to be here, to be studying your word, to have freedom to do that. Please send your spirit to be with each of us. May the words of our mouths and what we say and what we think be in tune with you. May we work toward your kingdom. May we learn of you. Amen. Okay, so this week is lesson seven in the quarterly. Um, the title of the lesson is Jesus, the Master of Missions. The, I'll read the, um, the um, memory verse. Uh, memory text was from John twenty twenty one. Jesus said to them again, Yes, peace be with you. Just as the Father sent me, so I am now going to send you. And so um, the lesson this week was Christ as a missionary. And um, my first thought was, Christ was a missionary. Who sent him? He sent himself. Most everyone immediately would say, well, God sent him. But who was he? He was God. He is God. He is one of the triune God. Okay, so he sent himself. Who did he send himself to? Any ideas? The Jews first. The Jews, okay. The Jews. And then the world. Anyone else? The universe. Okay. So his purpose was larger than to save me. That's a byproduct. Okay. And an important product for me. Okay. But that wasn't maybe his primary purpose. I, I, you have to say, yes, that was his intent. Okay was to save me. But, um, and I think it's important to, to keep that personal focus in mind because he did really come to save me. And, you know, that's a collective me. You know, and, and I think that we need to, to keep that in mind, but sometimes with our self-centered view of the universe... That's all we think about, and he really came to save the universe. Because if this had not occurred and been successful, was the universe on a, I mean, it's on a collision course because you had this disruptive force. You have this disruptive force that's in the universe that will not allow the universe to stand as a happy, healthy, peaceful, whatever. For eternity. The worst of all things would be for to live in eternity with a God that you did not trust. That would be a living hell. Um, and yet Christ was sent to his own family. Okay? Um, as a human being, he did not have many external things to show himself that he was God. Now can you imagine... Okay, and this is one of the temptations in the wilderness whenever Satan came to tempt him. If you're the Son of God, do this. If you're the Son of God, do that. Now, can you imagine you're a human being and now you believe yourself to be an extraterrestrial? 
that was sent of God, that has to be a bizarre idea that is either insane or divinely inspired. And how do you test that? Okay. Anyway, just a thought. Um, in Luke 4.18, Christ is reading from the book of Isaiah, and he's describing himself as sent of God. Okay? And then later in the same chapter, after he had performed some miracles in, in chapter Luke 4.43... The people who saw all these miracles came to him and said, hey, we're looking for you. And he was out praying, you know, and he said, I can't stay here. I am sent to other places. So he clearly saw himself as being sent on a mission to accomplish a task. So do you think that he knew at that time who he was? I think he knew. I think he knew before he ever began his ministry. I think it was an ongoing revelation. When he went as a 12-year-old boy and went to the temple and he saw the sacrifices and everything else and, and he had been sitting on his mother's knee and elsewhere reading the Old Testament, something that we don't realize in our own pampered self. I mean, I don't know when you started to read, but typically all five-year-olds in the Jewish economy had by that time memorized the first five books. By the time they reached 12 years of age, when they had their bar mitzvah, or equivalent in their economy, um, they had memorized not only the first five books, but they had also memorized um, the prophets by rote. Okay? If you were really good and you had memorized not only the scripture as we think of as the Old Testament, but you had also memorized many of the rabbis' sayings, then you may be invited to be a rabbi. So, when Christ went to the Galilean fishermen, they were the has-beens. They were those who had not quite made it in the memorization, whatever, and they had they were kind of lower on the totem pole in the religious standpoint. And here was someone who was a has been, who was approached by a young teacher who said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, and that was a big deal because they had already been rejected by the local council to be a rabbi. But they had so he had, he had been memorizing all this text. And then as he starts experiencing this in Jerusalem and with what he had been told by his mother and other things, you know, a realization of that's me, that's me, and that's me. Looked up in the, the Bible, you, you look in your concordance, your electronic concordance, whatever, you look for the word sent in whatever version of Bible that you read. And... Um, I looked up in, in several different versions, you know, and in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that word is used about 120 plus times, depending which version and how they use the translation or whatever, etc. Only a few of them are in reference to Christ, okay? Christ being sent. And um, 
If you go to Luke 23, that's where the trial of Christ is being held, he was sent by Pilate. He was sent by Pilate to Herod. Okay? Did it do Herod any good? If not, why not? Closed heart. Closed heart. Okay? So if, um, keeping along that same thought, turning your Sabbath school lesson to uh, Sabbath afternoon, and I'm going to read the first paragraph of the Sabbath afternoon's Sabbath school lesson. It says, according to Scripture, a core activity of the Trinity is mission. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in saving humanity. Their word began at the fall and continues through until the end. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will then restore this redeemed world to full unity with a divine will. How? How will the, the divine unity be restored in the world? I think we're back in mind to the part where it wasn't the, the divinity that was broken. It was us and our perception. And so by being the living, breathing example of God's heart and unselfish love, it put into example tactile, um, able to see it, able to appreciate what an unselfish heart looks like in action. Okay. When Christ prayed before his crucifixion, the, the prayer is recorded in John 17. And we can go to John 17, 9. Through 12. If someone doesn't mind reading um, John 17, 9 through 12, and then verse 17. So John 17, 9 through 12, and then verse 17. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, as we are one. While I was in, with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is the truth. Okay, and now read 20 to 24. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay. Thank you. List for me, or give me what you think, what has made them one? Reading from your own version or whatever, from this text, Christ lists himself as being one with the Father in previous times. And then he says, and now the disciples are one. And I pray for not only them, but the future people who will believe, based on what they say, that they be one. What is going to make them one? What is going to be unifying 
What is the what is the the method? Truth. Truth. Okay. Thy word is truth. Okay. Can unity be created by creative power? Now, I typically wear a bow tie on Sabbath that reminds me of God. I have several. It may be obliquely related to God, but um, today it's constellations. When I think of how much power it took for God to speak and create a universe, talking about a big bang, you know, that is enormous power. But can Christ, Christ was the, the creative vehicle God created, um, can Christ create unity by creative power? No. If so, why did disunity develop in the world in the first place? If not created by power, how will the Godhead restore unity? Now, in the first paragraph we read, they're going to restore unity at a time in the future. It's going to be restored. If not created by power, how will the Godhead restore unity with the divine will? Could he create unity by creative power? I think the answer actually might be yes, but the yes would be automatons or creatures that had not the reflection of God in their makeup and in their being. So you could you could create a um, something that would simply follow, but that is not the the creature that he created and could not sustain and, and respect that power of choice just by unity. You could create a creature that does that in the firmware of how you create your brain, but you would lose the autonomy of the personal, which is what Christ is about. Yeah. Except you just mentioned the cosmos. There is speaking a word, creative power, that creates a unifying force, the cosmos. I mean, if, if the cosmology doesn't teach us one thing, it's that there is a unifying principle that nobody can, scientists can't really explain without some sort of otherness. That being said, if he creates a principle that is so unifying that as we align ourselves to that truth, those, those principles, that we, became, we become one, we become unified. Okay, so in the, in the I'll get right back to you. Uh, um, so in the, in the paragraph, it says that there's going to be a time when the unity will be restored, okay? And you, you mentioned a principle, a unifying principle, or a law, or whatever, a entity, whatever, how you describe this, that will create unity. When will that restoration occur? I think it occurs is at hand okay so you're telling me it's not a time in the future so so in the paragraph it implies that and let me switch see if I can switch back electronically here it says um, continues through until the end father said will then restore this redeemed world to full unity with the divine will he may restore atoms, whatever, plants, animals, or whatever, to unity with his divine will. But he's not going to be restoring humanity at that time to his, his divine will. That will have already occurred. 
And that is what we are doing now. Yes. Uh, okay, sorry. Just a second. He, he. The, the glory or the spirit of God for what? Since we have a choice, the glory or the spirit of God will put us in unity. What is his glory? His character. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, you just touched on, I think, at the end there, uh, where you said that he, he will finish it or complete the restoration, something like that. Because we do have the term here in this last sentence of the first paragraph, this redeemed world to full unity with the divine will. That's the whole purpose for us now is to have developed within us the level of uh, divinity that we can absorb or that we can uh, be capable of at this point. But it's in the future that the full level of divinity will be united. Someone over here had their hand up and I, I missed them. Go ahead. The word restored means that at one time there was that unity. So when God created it, there was that unity, but he also created within them the ability to choose. So when God created them, there was unity. But when somebody exercised the will to choose something outside of the truth, that broke the unity, and it spread. It spread to this planet once we chose to not believe God's truth. So God's trying to restore the truth in humanity, and as we accept it, even though our bodies are not, you know, they're still, the whole world groweth and travailed, the whole natural world is reeling under the impact of what, you know, what we've done to it. But God, once he restores the truth in us, even though our bodies are not in conformity with that, one day he is going to come back and give us a body that will be in harmony with the truth that he's giving to us now. Okay. I want to go back to your point on bringing plants and animals back in. I, I'm a beekeeper. I'm, I'm kind of an amateur entomologist. I'm an amateur naturalist. I firmly believe, or if we know that Adam and Eve communicated with plants and animals, what we would call plants and animals, we know that Christ in his study and development learned from nature and the secrets of nature. I firmly believe that there's more depth to, what, to plants and animals than we understand or give credit to, and these plants and animals look forward to a lot of the same stuff we look forward to. Yeah, you... Um you, you look at um, videos of, um, there was a monkey at the Atlanta Zoo, or gorilla, or whatever you call him, big black thing, um, that had a pet kitten, and could communicate with humans in sign language, I forget how many hundreds of words they, that they could communicate, and they could actually carry on conversations with this beast. There's been studies where they've hooked up sensitive equipment, EEGs, EKGs, whatever, for your equivalent, to plants. And one study was there was a plant that was in a room where a violent murder took place. They didn't know who the guy was that did it, per se. And they paraded, all, they hooked the plant up to the equipment, they paraded all kinds of people in front, they got what you would call a normal sinus rhythm from the plant. They ran the one guy through that committed the murder, the plant went nuts. And they do this kind of stuff with plants, Whoa. understanding what's going on, and you're, you see all kinds of additional knowledge base and understanding in these creatures. Also, if you work with bees, if you don't understand bees and you're new and you're scared of the bees, the bees will understand that, they can sense that, smell that, whatever, 
and they will act defensively. And if you're comfortable with them, you can go in with basically a veil, shorts and shorts and, and a t-shirt without gloves and work with them because you have a rapport developed with them that they understand you, you understand them. There's a mutual benefit involved in that. Well, isn't it an understanding of who God is that really brings about, I mean, ultimately brings about the unity? Why was Abraham called a friend of God? And he was known as somebody that God could trust. What, what made that that way? Was it because his understanding, at least by the end of his life, who God was and who God is? And isn't that what brings us together yeah. in unity? Yes. So are you saying that the unity will be complete here now or in the future? I think individuals prior to Christ coming back to this earth will be in complete unity with God just like Who's the guy that walked with God? Enoch. I have a name block. I'm sorry. Um, Enoch walked with God and was in so union with God that at one point God said, you're closer to my house than yours. Let's come on. Well, the reason why I ask is the, um, I see it as a stepping stone. Is what I, I see that the connection, I mean, God the Father were in unity prior mm-hmm. to him coming incarnate. Then when he came here, he became in unity with us. Um, by the incarnation. And then from there, he gives us that opportunity to become in union with him and the Father and, and the Spirit. But the one verse, it said that, that they all may be um, one as you and the Father are one. So there's a final stage of unity that I don't think can happen here until, because we're not in unity with each other. Oh, you see what I'm but saying? I think it can occur. Well, it can, there can occur. But okay, you saw glimpses of this Acts 2 church, other times, in which truly there was unity. Now, it fell apart because of various issues, okay? I think think groups will unify, but I think there's that final stage where he says that the sheep shall hear his voice, and there are many folds. And it's when those folds come together, which ultimately will be the second coming, you know, that that time where we're we're bonded on one common goal, and that is, is... the character of God and the truth about Him. I guess one of the points I wanted to make was that we cannot wait until some magical time in the future in which some magic potion is going to be sprinkled on you and you're going to be unified with God. Yeah, ain't, ain't I, gonna, I the unity in God can happen right now. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Okay. Speaking of this incarnation, the second paragraph has a sentence in it. It says... Um, According to the Gospels, Jesus underwent the radical change into human form necessary for his mission to succeed in Jesus Christ. The meaning of history comes into focus. The total mission activity of God becomes coherent. Why? Why did the incarnation of God make... Why did the incarnation of God make the mission of God coherent? Now, I looked up in the, in the dictionary to find out what coherent means, and it, it says it's, it's easy, to, logical, well-organized, and easy to understand. Did the, did the incarnation of God make the mission of God logical, well-organized, and easy to understand? Christ's mission, certainly. His purpose was to reveal God's character of love. Okay. So, it would mean coherent means made it easier to understand the character of God he did that okay 
want to go back to a statement we've made many times in this, in this kind of general discussions here in this room. If you make the wrong diagnosis, the wrong prescription will be given. Okay? If the diagnosis is wrong, the treatment will be wrong. So, who is estranged at the fall of man? Us. Okay? Who needs to be changed by the missionary activities of Christ? Us. If your description of the plan of salvation does not make common sense, maybe the diagnosis of what went wrong is wrong. In 1 John 2.1, if you can turn to 1 John 2.1, You're my spirit of children, and I'm sharing these things with you so you won't sin. If any of you do fall into sin, there is someone who stands in the presence of the Father and pleads your case before the universe, Jesus Christ, the King, the Righteous One. That's from the clear word. Okay, that's the clear word. That's a paraphrase. So let's read it another, from another version, so in case someone thinks that that's, that's contaminated. Um, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Just before the class began, we had this little brief discussion. Okay? And I said, wait. You know? What direction is Christ facing? Us. Okay? How is he with the Father? In what way is he with the Father? Okay? John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So if he is with the Father, and he's our advocate... Who is he facing? He's a representative of God. To whom? To us. If you have God, Christ, facing the Father, why? Trying to make the Father understand and believe that he's not doing that. Pleading your case. For what purpose? If, If he and the Father are one... They know each other perfectly, then there is no purpose. There is no purpose whatsoever for him to have his back toward us, facing the Father, pleading our case. I also think he might be pleading the case before the other angels, because if you, if, if, if I would think the other unfallen angels, having seen the absolute devastation. That happened with Lucifer turning and the third of the angels getting kicked out and all the rest would be highly cautious of having any any possible risk in the future of a contamination coming in that, that would continue the cycle. If that's true, then both he and the Father are pleading exactly. our case before the universe. Yeah. It's not Christ pleading to the Father. In John sixteen twenty six. Okay, John, go to John 16, 26. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. 20, verse 27. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and I have believed that, and believe that I came out from the Father. 
Christ is not having to plead to the Father for us. He is with the Father pleading their case to us. Okay? In Romans 8.26, it says, The Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. Which direction is the Spirit of God facing? He's, he's facing us. You know, I always read these texts about how the Holy Spirit um, takes our prayers or whatever and makes them acceptable to God or whatever, etc. And yet, if He is truly God's emissary to us, He's not trying to make us acceptable to God. God has already accepted us. He is pleading God's case with our finite minds, trying to make us understand who God is and how loving He is and what unity really means. In that case, prayers and the change of that, I see it more as taking the intent of our heart and the words that we're asking may not be opening up and inviting in God's intervention as the Holy Spirit would be able to... um, uh, I, I, I don't think God needs that, that, that thing. I mean, if they're one and they're truly on our side, then it's not the Holy Spirit trying to convince God to do something. If the Holy Spirit is according to the will of God, who is being changed by His activity? It's not God the Father. It's us. So... In Romans 8, 31, 39, continuing the same passage, uh, um, Romans 8, 31. Yeah, what can be said about these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up, how shall we not be with us freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifieth. It's not he's that's accusing us. He's the one who's bringing us in. Okay? It's Christ that died. If you read through this passage, it's God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are all on our side. They're all three as a unified force working toward our benefit. And we have him turned all around, arguing amongst themselves on who who gets credit and who, who can make us and, you know, is this poor worm worthy of saving? You know? It's wrong. To whom is he sent? He is sent to us. What direction are the efforts expended? It's to us. Whose heart needs to be changed? It's not God's heart. Second Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of, word of reconciliation. The whole team is working to reconcile us into unity. Or in, in uh, just thinking of it, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, he, care, he records no wrongs. He doesn't hold against us if he's truly love. So, the energy of the universe of God himself who created and sustains the universe by his power is being directed toward his children. It is not inward focused. 
This is not one member of the Trinity trying to convince another member of the Trinity to do something. They are of one mind and one purpose. Their love, attention, and yearning activities are aimed toward us and the universe. Uh, it seems like every time I teach this Sabbath school lesson, I, I end up on the same thing. But anyway, let's go to Sunday's lesson. Um, uh, the lesson reviews some of the messianic prophecies of Isaiah and description of prophetic timelines for the Messiah as given by Daniel. What is the most compelling description of Christ in the Old Testament? What example would you use? What is the most compelling what? What is the most compelling item or, or um, evidence, the description of Christ in the Old Testament? The story of Abraham and Isaac. What would you use? The lamb, the sacrifice. <laughs> the sacrificial lamb of the ritual service. Okay. I think the, the telling prophecy in Isaiah that we would esteem him smitten by the Father. Okay. The Creator. Okay. You know, you go through the Old Testament, and the whole thing is Christ. You know. You know. You look at the temple service. Every item in the sanctuary was a representation of Christ. From the altar, to the sacrifice, to the showbread, to the lamp, it all represented Christ. You know, each of the stories, you go down to the stories, the story of Noah, he was the one that saved humanity. Okay? Abraham. The story of Joseph. Joseph saved his own people, the entire known world, persecuted by his brothers. And you go on and on and on. You look at David. We often read the Messianic Psalms as being evidence about the Messiah. But who wrote the Messianic Psalms and who, why did he write them? He was writing them about himself. I'm a compass about dogs. I've been you know, betrayed by my friends. I would ever... So David is an example of Christ in the Old Testament. Hosea, going after his estranged wife, his, you know, wife that was going off, etc. You know, there's a text um, from uh, Mrs. White, um, from Desire of Ages. It says, In every page, whether history or precept or prophecy... The Old Testament scriptures are irradiated with the glory of the Son of God. So far as it was of divine institution, the entire system of Judaism was a compacted prophecy of the gospel. To Christ, give all the prophets witness. Acts 10.43 From the promise given to Adam down through the patriarchal line and the legal economy, heaven's glorious light made plain the footsteps of the Redeemer. Seers beheld the star of Bethlehem, the Shiloh to come, as future things swept before them in mysterious procession. In every sacrifice, Christ's death was shown. In every cloud of incense, his righteousness ascended. By every jubilee trumpet, his name was sounded. In the awful mystery of the Holy of Holies, his glory dwelt. It's the entire Old Testament. And yet people say, oh, the Old Testament is bad, and the Old Testament is good. You know, we need to open our eyes. All right. 
Um, and Monday, uh, let's, let's not do that. Um, I may come back to Monday, but let's, let's go on. Um, I'll put that over here, maybe. Um, let's see. Um, okay. Um, go, going to um, Tuesday's lesson, Mission to the Jews. Um, there's another quote from Mrs. White that I like from the Desire of Ages. It says, Multitudes who were not interested in the harangues of the rabbis were attracted by his teaching. They could understand his words and their hearts were warmed and comforted. He spoke of God not as an avenging judge but as a tender father and he revealed the image of God as mirrored in himself. His words were like balm to the wounded spirit. Both by his words and by his works of mercy, he was breaking the oppressive power of the old traditions and man-made commandments and presenting the love of God in his exhaustless fullness. Why was God, Christ, sent only by his words, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? It says, he said only. When he's describing his, his thing, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the reference here, but Christ himself said, I am only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay? Why did he say that? Yes? Because they were the only one that uh, had an economy and a scripture that uh, could have fully appreciated if they would believe him. And those who did believe him were able to be more powerful witnesses because they had that, that history. That's why Paul was such an effective witness. He, he understood, once he understood that Christ was God and understood how he was described in the Old Testament, he could explain it more powerfully. But that was supposed to be for the whole nation. Right. And so it was an advantage to being a Jew. Okay? Because you, you had a language in which you could speak about God in a coherent manner. I went to medical school. They beat it into me. Um, and that you, essentially, you're learning a foreign language. Okay? You, you get medical people sitting around a table, and they start talking medical talk, and someone else comes up, and they have this blank look on their face. It's like, what are you guys doing? Because they're speaking a foreign language. It's in shorthand. They have learned a language, and it's an advantage... To speak that language in a medical context. It helps you do things more quickly. Doesn't make sense to, to anybody else, but etc. And so when you go and talk to someone else who doesn't have that language, it's, it's not to their advantage to speak that language. It takes a lot more verbiage to explain something. You have words that... One or two words will describe something and, you, and the person who, who, if they had that knowledge, said, oh, okay. I, I teach residents in my current job and, and um, you know, it used to be that I used to get fourth and fifth year residents rotating through my service. It was very nice. I only didn't realize how nice it was until now in which I'm getting first and second year residents rotating through my service. And I will say something to them and it's just like, 
Oh no. I don't know what he said. I'm supposed to know it. But, you know, and it's like you have to stop, back up, and then explain something in detail so that they can now understand the previous sentence that you said. Okay? So there is an advantage to being a Jew. It didn't make them any more saved, but they could understand the language that was being spoken. So why did Christ, is that the only reason that Christ sent the twelve disciples to the Jews first? What are the potential reasons that he sent them to the Jews first? Don't go to the, the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the Jews first. And then even after his resurrection, he said, first stay in Jerusalem and after Holy Spirit coming, then you go to the Jews. Yes? I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but there, there was a, they had a three and a half year time period before probation would be closed for the Jewish nation. And he wanted to make sure that, that everybody whose heart was still open could still receive it. Okay. So there was a prophecy about a three and a half years. Okay. Was that, a, was that prophecy given because... That was going to be enforced. We're going to give them three and a half years. And after three and a half years, if you ain't got it, then you haven't got it. It anticipated what would happen. Yes. Take that long, and then after that, there'd be no change. So, for three and a half years, and then we have their their minds are closed. Okay. So, if the disciples would have gone to the Samaritans would have gone to the Gentiles first, what Jew would have ever listened to him? There was such strict prejudice on the part of the Jews that those Jews who may have listened would not have even listened to him because, of, oh, that's, that's that. Okay? So, God gives us what we need. Sometimes it's not the best that we could have. If we were better listeners. When he, when he talked to the disciples, he said, there's more I'd like to give to you, but you can't handle it right now. Okay? Those were good things, but they couldn't handle it because they were not ready. Their minds were not able to comprehend. Okay? The sequence of Acts 1.8 of Jerusalem, Samaritans, and then the rest of the world was due to the hardness of their hearts. The compassionate heart of God was yearning for all to hear his message, even the resistant Jews. They were the only people who had a religious language. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes. I don't understand. I don't understand when he says, I was sent only, but also this. I don't understand that. It doesn't say you were first. It's just only the lost of this. I don't understand that. So his ministry, his three and a half years were only... Now, he snuck off a, a couple times. He snuck off to Phoenicia and, and um, the Phoenician woman you know, came in and, 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 he, and he snuck off. He had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to. All the, Jew, the rest of the Jews went around. He, he walked through Samaria, met the woman at the well, and, and she was the only person that he admitted to that he was the Messiah. Why? Because she was willing and able and using what she received in a positive way. If he would have told the, the, the Jews he was the Messiah, they, they had this concept of the Messiah that was totally bizarre. It, not bizarre, but it was, it was wrong. And bad things would have happened if he would have done that. 
So he had three and a half years to present to those people who had the best access to the verbiage, the culture, and everything else to make sense of this. That's not the eventual thing. And in fact, when he gave his, his final commission, he said, go to all the world. Okay? So, okay. You know, in, in John 3, 3, when t- he was talking to Nicodemus, he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I always thought, oh, unless you're born again, you'll, you won't be saved. No, you can't see. In Revelation, he who has eyes, he who has ears, let him hear what the, the Spirit says to the churches. Unless we have converted eyes and ears, we will not see, we will not understand, we will not have any comprehension of what's going on. It's not because it's going to be restricted. We just can't comprehend it. At the bottom of Tuesday's lesson... There's a a paragraph that talks about the establishment of a center for the foundation of missions. And it talks about how important this principle is that we establish a center and then we can go off and do missions. Okay? Is that concept valid? Let me, let me stop right here and say that I'm a member of the Assembly of this Church and I, may, I believe that's a very good entity. I went with my daughter to the GC and stopped for a day and the way by and, and went to the, some of the, the sessions and the exhibits and whatnot, etc. I believe wholeheartedly that the evangelistic outreach of the church could not occur without resources that are provided by an entity. But it, I do not think that is the main way that the gospel will be taken to the world. I don't even think it's the best way that the gospel is taken to the world. If you read 2 Kings 5, 1 to 6, it's a story. I ought to turn there. 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 5, 1 to 6. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given him deliverance into Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and brought away captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were that the prophet that is in Samaria... For he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying thus, and said, The maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed. Oh, brother, this is King James. Let me get some other version. Um, That's sorry. Library. Let's go to some other translation. Okay. So, So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said, reading for the New Living Translation. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver. 150 pounds of gold. 
and ten sets of clothing. Okay? I have a few questions. Number one, how far apart is Damascus from Jerusalem? About 150 miles. 135 miles if you go straight line. It's about 150 traveling miles if you travel on the road straight. You can't do that now because of all the guards and the, and the landmines and all that sort of stuff. But at that time, it was about 150 miles going by caravan. Okay? I don't know how many camels or donkeys or whatever it takes to carry 750 pounds of silver. And now, and it, it, if this was official royal silver, it would not have been just in a bag. It would have been enclosed and wrapped and, and thin with an official title on it, etc. With here, this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And these are boxes and boxes and boxes of silver and gold and clothing. Just put it on a cart. A cart can handle a lot more weight than a camera. <laughs> okay. I don't know how big a caravan this is. Okay? This was sent because a little girl gave witness. What center of evangelism sent this little girl to Naaman? Is this how God works? A center of evangelism. Where was the center of evangelism to send Elijah when he went? Abraham, when he went. How was the news of the gospel spread during the first century? Was it a center of evangelism in Jerusalem, then sending out missionaries to the world? Read Acts 8, 1 through 5. Okay? We're going to go to Acts 8. 1 through 5. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except their apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. How did the, the message of the gospel spread? It, it wasn't a center of evangelism got together and sponsored a wonderful worldwide thing. The world was converted by individual ind people going out and witnessing wherever they were. And what if they witnessed in their own backyard? They didn't feel they had to go 12 time zones away to witness. Yeah. I have a whole bunch of, of, of notes that will go in the, in the um, notes that you can get off online, etc., of quotes. I'd just like you to um, listen to one quote. The Apostle Paul says to the disciples of Jesus, Ye are manifestly declared to be an epistle of Christ, known and read of all men. In every one of his children, Jesus sends a letter to the world. If you are Christ's follower, he sends you in a letter to the family, the village, the street where you live. Jesus dwelling in you, 
desires to speak to the hearts of those who are not acquainted with him. Perhaps they do not read the Bible or do not hear the voice that speaks to them in its pages. They do not see the love of God through his works, but if you are a true representative of Jesus, it will be it may be that through you they will be led to understand something of his goodness and be one to love and serve him. Steps to Christ, page 119. I don't think it's the center of evangelism. And I, I have evangelistic people who are members of my family. They need a job. They do good work. But I don't think that's how we're going to win the world. And Wendell, the other part is those people were dragged out of their houses prisoners. It was under whatever condition they found themselves. And oftentimes not by choice. But wherever they were, it was God that they were passing to. Um, I'm running out, so I'm not going to make it back to Monday. But I, um, in the teacher's quarterly, um, for those of you who have that, the very end of the quarterly um, had a, a, a thing about legates, and, and Paul talked about you being a legate to the world, and the legate was someone who went to the, the Roman um, army. So when the army conquered a, a town, the legate came in with the general, and the legate was the guy who set up the, the government in the town. And he tried to make the rules on by which that town was going to be run for the Roman government. Yes, the army was there to enforce it, but the legate was the, and, um, was the person who actually was the implementer of, um, of, of the Roman citizenship. Um, and the, the, the quarterly said, invite class members to imagine that they are drawing up the terms for someone to become a Christian, a member of the family of God. What would the list look like Discuss another one, one another's ideas. No. Don't. This is not what de- develops unity. Okay? It's why we have 3,000 Christian organizations in the world. Is people drop their own list of what it takes to be a Christian. And it has nothing to do with Christ. It builds walls of separation between the ins and the outs. At this point in my life, this is not good for me. Okay? I already am too willing and able to devise human restrictions on God's love and acceptance. I need to be more willing to see God's love in all. Man looks on the outward appearance. God works on the heart. I do not need encouragement to build walls of definition to separate me or anyone else from God's love. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have shown us. We thank you for the Spirit. May he come into our lives and may we truly be one with you. May we honor you. May we represent those who we come in contact with on a daily basis. May we be lights to them, whether we realize that or not. May you come soon. May we know how to work to that end. Amen.